Good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here this morning. If you will, can you open up the word of God to Luke chapter 14, 25 and 35. And if you are able, please rise for the reading of scripture. The title of the message this morning is The Call to Be a Follower, Not Just a Fan. Today's scriptures reading begins with, Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he had laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms for peace, terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, Everyone, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or the manure pile. They throw, they throw, they throw it out. Let anyone who has ears listen. With that, let's go to the Lord God in prayer once again. As a pastor once said, preaching this word, he said that this is a hard saying, but easy to understand. This morning, each and every one of us who is here Everyone who hears these words that's being preached this morning will be challenged. There will be challenge on the commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ. And those who do not know Christ will be challenged to weigh and to consider if they really want to commit to Christ. I pray, Lord, that this morning that you will remove me I pray, Father, that you will remove any distractions. I find that this part of scripture is so important because to me, sometimes I feel like that we just have a stadium full of fans. Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would guide our hearts And I really want people to really understand there was no one like you. With that said, we bless you, we thank you, and we give you all the honor and praise. In Jesus Christ's name, and all the God's people say, and you may be seated. Um, Before I actually start, I would like to ask for you to give, uh, just to pray for me. Uh, I kind of feel like my voice is giving out um, and I'm feeling quite fatigued. So I would just ask you if you can ask the Lord to give me the energy to be able to preach his word from start to finish. Thank you. So when it comes to this passage, the main idea is this. To follow Jesus, we must first consider the cost 
and put him above everything else. Let me repeat this. To follow Jesus, we must consider the cost and put him above everything else. With that statement alone, I want to share with you my experience. My experience of me talking to a Navy recruiter. You see, back in 2002, I was on the fence if I really wanted to commit myself to being a Navy, to be a part of the team. But I just didn't want to go in blindly. I didn't know what was going on. So I spoke with a Navy recruiter. I sat down in his office and we began to talk. Now, if anybody who's been in the military would understand that Navy recruiters don't really give the truth all the time. Their job is to enlist people. And so they're going to do whatever tactic they can to bring you aboard. So I told my Navy recruiter, I was like, look, I just want you to be truthful with me. And I want you to be honest with me. I want to know what's going to be expected of me when I get into boot camp. And then once boot camp is completed, I want to know what's expected of me when I'm out there in the real Navy. So please just be open. Be honest with me. Because right now I'm about 90% and the 10% is really understanding and really calculating the cost of what it, what it means to be in the Navy, to be in the military. And let me share some of the information that was provided to me from my Navy recruiter. Um, you see, in the United States Navy, it provides numerous benefits to its service members. It includes free food, housing, medical, dental services, free education. These benefits are designed to really support sailors in their roles and responsibilities but also come at a cost. The cost of self. While these free services are undoubtedly valuable, they can also come at a cost to the individual's sense of self. You see, service members may feel at a loss of, uh, of autonomy and independence as their lives become increasingly structured by the demands of the military. Meaning is that once I'm in the military, I can't just simply be like, okay, I'm at a duty station. Hey, yo, senior chief, you know what? I want to go out and I want to go to Hawaii. I want to go over to China. I want to be able to, no, 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 no. That doesn't work that way. Everything you got to ask permission for. The communication is different. I can't just say whatever I want to say and do whatever I want to do. No. They address you. When you have to address an officer, it's either yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am. How I dress. I can't come in dressed like this. They give you uniforms. So there is a loss of independence. The next is cost of relationships. The Navy's free services can also impact relationships with friends and family. Sailors may be required to move frequently and often to different states and countries, making it difficult to maintain close connections with loved ones. Additionally, the demanding nature of military life can strain relationships as service members may be away from home for extended periods of time. There have been many, many that I've come across that ended up in divorce because some of these sailors are out in the ship for nine to, out of the 12 months. If they're stationed in hazard zones, they can't bring their friends, they can't bring their families. And often you don't really have a form of communication depending on where you're at. There's been many sailors that I've known that have missed out on their being present at their newborn when their baby's being born. 
There's a lot of things that you miss out on. The next is the cost of possessions. Service members may feel may also feel the face of cost of possessions because when you're enlisted in the military, you can't bring the things that you have at home. I couldn't bring my boombox that I had with me. I couldn't bring the mountains of CDs that I had or, and the, the mountains of DVDs and, and everything else like that. I couldn't bring that. Let alone, I can't even bring my own clothes. Because once we got into boot camp, it was just like, hey, you guys got to take off your clothes. Here's your guys' uniform. These are the things you're going to be wearing. I watched many service members while in, in doing processing crying. Why are they crying? Well, this one guy, he had a nice size afro. And you see that thing just being buzzed off. Every single one of us is getting a haircut. And he was crying. And there's been many people I've seen that were crying because that was the hair. They grew it. They had it forever. Came at a cost. Next, I want to share with you is the cost of life. The most significant cost of the Navy's free services is the ultimate cost of life. Service members put their lives on the line to protect and serve their country and risk, they risk everything. I signed a contract. And once I signed that contract, I'm there. I, I, I'm theirs. They own me. They own me. For the, for the next four years, they own me. Church, I'm sharing this information with you about the Navy because it is similar to the Christian life. Jesus' salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. You see, the gift of salvation holds immense significance for Christians as it addresses the fundamental problem of human existence, the presence of sin. Sin separates humanity from God and it results in spiritual death, eternal condemnation, and a broken relationship with the Creator. Through salvation, Christians are delivered from the power and the penalty of sin they are granted a new relationship with God, characterized by love and forgiveness and grace. And moreover, salvation offers hope for eternal life in the presence of God. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. This morning's passage serves as a reminder that discipleship is not a decision to be taken lightly but demands sincere reflection and willingness to embrace the implications of a wholehearted devotion to Jesus. In this passage, Jesus lists three main categories of, of the cost of discipleship. The first is self. The second is relationships. And the third is possessions. This message is going to challenge believers. It's going to challenge believers because it's going to really raise the question of our commitment level to Christ. Where is that at? To the non-believer. It's all going to be laid out for you. Where now you're going to have to make a decision. So upon hearing this message, take the time to ponder. Take the time to understand. Take the time to really, where are you at? Do you really want to be a follower of Christ? Because if you do, it's going to cost you everything. Having said that, I just want to take the time before we actually start diving into the to scriptures to kind of give a, a breakdown of the of four main sections here that we're going to dive into this morning. The first 
starts in Luke chapter 14 and 25 to 27. This is the call to discipleship. In Luke chapter 14, 28 and 30, this is considering and evaluating the cost. Then when it comes down to verse 31 to 33, this is renouncing everything, as I put it. And then lastly is 34 and 35, avoiding lukewarmness. So let us begin with verse 25 and 27 in the the 14th chapter of Luke. I'm going to read this again. It reads, Now great crowds were traveling with them. And so he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This passage tells us here that it begins with that there is a, a great crowd that is traveling with Jesus here in verse 25. Now, if you notice that the crowds is in a plural form, and, and, and there's a reason for that because the reader wants us to understand that this was not a small crowd. In fact, the crowd that we have here in this church building is not a great crowd. What the reader is trying to convey to us is, is like, look, this is a, a great crowd upon great crowds. Just think of it as a football stadium uh, uh, when, when it's Super Bowl day. When it's Super Bowl day. Everyone is in the building, right? But it's not the people who are just sitting in the seats who are in the building, but those, there are people who are outside tailgating, right? So Jesus is, it, that's what the reader is trying to convey to us, is Jesus to have this massive crowd that has followed him, that has traveled alongside him. This great crowd consisted of both Jews and Gentiles who were drawn to Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God and the demonstration of divine power, of him healing the sick, of him feeding the 5,000. Throughout his ministry, Jesus gained a significant following of people from various backgrounds, including his disciples but also include curious onlookers, those seeking healing or deliverance, and those generally interested in his message. Then when we get here to the middle of the verse, it says, so he turned. So he turned. There's something on Jesus' mind. So he turned. This is a moment where Jesus is now going to address this great crowd. You see, Jesus needed to have the DTR talk. But what is the DTR talk? It's define the relationship. He is going to turn to the people and he's going to define the relationship. And let me briefly talk about the meaning of define the relationship. Define the relationship is a crucial conversation between two individuals dating or in a romantic relationship. This conversation allows both parties to discuss and clarify the nature of their relationship, expectations, and future plans. During the DTR talk, individuals often share feelings and desires and intentions toward the relationship. Its purpose is to ensure mutual understanding that both parties are on, this, are on the same page. This talk can help minimize misunderstandings, uncertainty, and potential heartbreak by clarifying and defining boundaries. DTR talk usually occurs when a relationship has progressed to a point where both individuals feel the need to define their commitment level. Both individuals will discuss numerous faucets of their relationship, such as planning, communication, expectation, emotional emotional, uh, availability. They must also discuss if this relationship is going to be monogamy. 
Or do they see this relationship as a long-term commitment to one another? The DTR talk, it begins with an honest and open and vulnerable talk of communication. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to have with this great crowd. You see, Jesus wants to clarify the nature, the nature of this, this relationship. Jesus is going to clarify any type of expectations that you may have. He wants to make sure that there is no misunderstandings, and he wants you to be certain that if you're going to be involved in this relationship, hey, we need to talk about these things. Right? He's going to define the boundaries. So Jesus turned to the crowd and he said, if anyone comes to me, now I want to stop there. He's, he's letting everyone know, anyone who wants to come to me, anyone who wants to be, who wants to basically get the free gift of salvation, anyone, you, me, every individual, rich, poor, whoever it is out there, This open invitation is free, but it will cost you. There will be a cost to self. There will be a cost to a cost in your relationships, a cost in all your possessions, and yes, a cost to even your own life. In verse 26, we begin to see that Jesus will now define the terms of coming to him. Please don't. Miss that. Jesus will define the terms of coming to him. There was one pastor that puts it, I, I, I immediately got it when he said it. He said this. He said, the one who issues the call sets the terms. I thought that was so powerful because it's so true. Because look, Going back to my military, the, Na the Navy issued a call. Hey, anybody who wants to join us, you're, you're free to join. But you don't set the terms. We set the terms. Whatever that you're wearing, you're not going to wear that. How you talk to people, you're not going to talk like that, right? Whatever that you're, you're bringing, you're not bringing, right? The great crowds were not allowed to define or determine the terms. And so Jesus is going to open up about the cost of discipleship. And he's going to begin with relationships. He's going to begin with relationships. You see, a person seeking salvation through Jesus must value God over his family. The term, his own, we see here in verse 26, emphasizes the standard attachment and inherent priority of family. Look, this is a very sensitive situation, right? Because there, we, we, we love our family. We love our mom. We love our dad. Whoever that we have a relationship, there is a strong connection. There is a strong attachment. Look, Jesus warned that families will be divided over him. Read with me in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 36. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 36, it reads that, Don't assume that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his, of his household. Jesus, Jesus uses the word hate. He uses the word hate to convey a strong message about our commitment to follow him. To understand Jesus, uh, when it comes to the, the use of the word hate, it is crucial to consider ancient Hebrew and Greek cultural context. Because you see, in biblical times, language often employs strong contrasts and hyperbole to express a point. In this context, 
The term hate does not carry its modern meaning of intense hatred or ill will towards someone. But instead, it is used as a verbal device to highlight a radical prioritization. Jesus is not advocating for actual hatred towards one's family or oneself, but rather emphasizing the following uh, following him requires an unparalleled level of commitment. The term hate is used to illustrate that one's love for Jesus should be so profound, so profound that it makes all other relationships secondary. The meaning, look, look, look. Let me try to draw a picture. Our, our love and commitment for Christ should be so profound, it should be so up here that all other relationships should be down here. That's where Jesus is getting at. Jesus intends to use strong language to challenge his listeners to reevaluate their priorities. He wants them to understand that discipleship demands complete devotion and loyalty to him above all else. By using the word hate, Jesus aims to shake the people out of complacency and cultural norms. Urging them to put them to put them first in their lives intentionally. He's using this word to to really shake us up because it does. When you're talking about hate towards one's family, doesn't it just like what? Like, what do you mean? Like, hate? you want me to hate my own wife, my own, my own mother and father, my own family? Like, doesn't that just shake you out of complacency? And that's exactly what Jesus is conveying to this large crowd. He's using strong language to get their attention. So in a nutshell, what is Jesus actually saying? This is what Jesus is saying. The family cannot be an idol for a Christian. Plain and simple. Yes, we provide for our families as a sign of our faith and we care for them, which is uh, uh, stated in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 8. But discipleship requires us to reevaluate our priorities and sometimes leave our families behind to follow Christ. Don't you see, church? This comes at a cost. This comes at a cost. And we must be willing to pay it. Another form of payment to follow Jesus is self. To follow Jesus, one must hate even his own, uh, one's life, or he cannot be my disciple. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 25, it reads, The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, for eternal life. You see, self-denial is a requirement of the call to salvation. It demands that the sinner's life uh, surrenders all worldly interests and all affections and submit to Jesus' authority. The person must be ready to give up his own life rather to give up on the Lord. That self-denial extends to death, as Jesus states in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you're unwilling to die to oneself, you cannot be his disciple. If you cannot give up profanity, you cannot be Christ's disciple. If you cannot be sexually pure, you cannot be his disciple. If you're just living a life of adultery, you cannot be his disciple. You have to deny yourself. There must be a willingness to carry the, uh, to, to carry the cross, which means that anyone willing to follow Jesus must be prepared to share Jesus' fate of being persecuted and put to death. Everyone in Jesus' era, while living under the rule of the Roman Empire, understood that carrying a cross was a sign of death. It was a sign of death. 
Jesus' followers must be willing to hate their own lives and even endure the Roman crucifixion because of their loyalty to Jesus. I'm sure most of us have seen the the movie, The Passion of the Christ, right? Where you begin to see Jesus bloodied, bruised, beaten, carrying the heavy wooden cross to Calvary. But that wasn't the only experience that Jesus was faced. For there were many people looking upon Christ as he was carrying that cross. Jesus faced shame, humiliation, disgrace, dishonor. He was dishonored. Carrying that cross. And that is what Jesus is telling us. Anyone who comes after him must bear the cross. We must go through the same thing that Jesus went through. If called. But we should be willing to bear your cross. Jesus says that we must suffer with him. Each disciple must shoulder their cross. Every day, we have to take it up and carry it. Our death is on the cross. It's our self-denial. It involves sharing in the suffering of the Savior to further his kingdom. Jesus teaches that carrying the cross is essential to the Christian life, not incidental. It is not incidental. You see, each disciple, each disciple, cross looks different. It looks different. For one, it's family persecution. For another, it's refusing homosexuality. Another, sexual purity. Though they vary, we all own one. We each have a cross to bear if we are to be his disciples. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Now, having to understand what it means to bear your cross Jesus wants us to now consider the cost, to consider the cost. And we'll see that in these two illustrations. The first illustration pictures a man planning to build a tower. So when we move to verses 28 and 30, we'll see what Jesus has to say. It reads, For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost and see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. In this illustration, the tower is a visible building that the entire town would have known. Everyone can see. You can see it miles away. Jesus brings up this illustration because in those days, upholding one's honor and avoiding disgrace to oneself and one's family were significant concerns. It would have been dishonorable for this man to have started something and then been been unable to complete it. Jesus points out that the man would, would would have become the talk of the town when everyone noticed the incomplete tower and started to make uh, started making fun of him. You see, when we look at uh, verses 29 and 30, it says that all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying this man started to build a tower uh, and was was unable to finish, unable to finish. This man is not what you think. They're being 
derogatory, sorry, tongue-tied. Meaning, let me just uh, put it this way. So when Pastor Steve says something that is smart, I usually say, well, okay there, genius. You know, <laughs> all right, well, all right. You know, I always, keep, I always say that to him when I know he's saying something smart. That's what it's like right here. They're saying that this man, it's like, this man started to build something and he didn't finish it. Like, this makes no sense. The problem is, and what Jesus is pointing out here, is because the man didn't calculate the cost. This is what this man is like. This guy is just like, he sees an open, so we'll, we'll, we'll take the back of the church here. You see that big open field. And the guy's probably just walking along and just, you know, looking at the birds and all that stuff. He sees a big open field and he's just like, oh, why not just build a tower? Wouldn't that be cool? And all of a sudden he starts building the tower, right? And the thing is, he never really calculated the cost. He never got with a financial planner. He didn't get with the guy who, who provides the lumber or the guy who provides the nail and to see how much that would actually cost or to sit down to, or to see what the structure is going to be like. He didn't do that. It was just willy-nilly. I'm just like, oh, I just want to build a building. And so he didn't build the building. And so now people are going to look at him and just like, how is it that you did not sit down with a financial planner to figure out if he had enough money to build this building? And so now you got this half structure that everyone can see and everyone can tell is, is incomplete. And so now you're the joke of the town. You're the joke of the village. Did you not consider it? Are calculated? <sighs> you know, this illustration reminds me of marriage. It reminds me of uh, uh, when it comes down to marriage. You see, when it comes to marriage, counting the cost means... <laughs> Understanding the commitment that comes with it. Marriage requires sacrifice, compromise, and willingness to put your partner's needs before yours. It means committing to love and, and support each other through good times and bad and sickness and health. It is crucial to approach marriage with a sense of seriousness and responsibility. This means taking the time to understand the implications and promises of this lifelong commitment. Remember, this is a lifelong commitment. It requires open and honest communication with your partner about your financial expectations and goals. Marriage is not just about love and romance. It is about partnership that requires both parties to actively work towards building a solid foundation. By counting the costs and entering into marriage with a clear understanding of the responsibilities and sacrifices involved, couples can increase their chances of a successful marriage and an appropriate marriage. However, when couples decide to elope without counting the cost, they later regret their decision and get a divorce. Well, as a result, the couple will become the center of public jokes. Because they never counted the cost. Also, this quick and rash decision would affect the couple's families, which will be dishonored and disgraced. I don't think we do enough shaming, right? We live in a world today, as, as it comes down to, it's all about you. It's whatever makes you feel happy, right? And believe me, I've, I've come across many people, especially in the military, where I'm just not happy and I'm just going to get a divorce. And, I, and, and it would just, I, I, it just shocked me. I'm just like, did you not count the cost when it comes to Marriage, this is a lifelong commitment. You, 
You got right there before the pastor and before everyone else. And you say that you're going to be committed to that person for the rest of your life. To death do you part. Well, she didn't cook for me, so. Come on. Like, it's just out of the, the ridiculous things that I've heard. I'm just like, are you serious? You see, church, Jesus' first illustration is a, is a message to consider and weigh all available options before acting. A person must first ensure that he can finish what he undertakes before starting. Jesus doesn't want quick decisions. He wants individuals to fully comprehend the commitment they are making and the sacrifices they have to make to follow him. Consider the cost. In the second illustration, here we have a king who is unintentionally thrown into a situation that is out of his control. We see that in verses 31 and 32. It reads, Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down to decide if he is able, to, if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still, is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. You see, Jesus urged his listeners to see themselves as a king, ready to face another king who has mobilized a more powerful army to fight him. Would he not sit down and first and first and will sit down first and think if he is powerful enough with the ten thousand troops to meet the one coming against him with twenty thousand? There is a need to evaluate rather terrain, weapons. Logistics and tactical or strategic advantages would offset the sheer superiority of his opponent. If not, it would be self-destructive insanity for the king and the soldiers to move forward with the fight. If there was no chance of success, the only sensible course of action for him would be to send a delegation and ask for terms for peace, right? Let me put it to you this way. You see, the first illustration is about the builder, and it's not the same as the second illustration. Instead, Jesus, God, is portrayed as a king and he must, and that we must battle with. Here, it's about identifying who is more powerful and, and suggests a warning to make peace with the more powerful God. Who in our right minds do we think that we can, come against, can go against God? And I'm sure there's a lot of foolish men that think so. In fact, I, I just remembered, and God put it to my remembrance. I'm sorry, Pastor C, but I'm going to have to put it out there. Uh, when my brother and uh, Steve were doing some things that was uh, very sinful, and they thought that they can get away with everything. They even thought that they can get away even before God. And even I knew, and I wasn't a believer, I was just like, dude, that's foolish. I was like, you can't be thinking that way. I had to do it, Steve. So, <laughs> But Put yourself in that position. You're a king and you're going against God himself. And the 20,000 is not just the 20,000. God has legions of angels. And not just by the legions of angels, but by the power of his word, he can destroy you. So wouldn't it make more sense to, man, I can't go against God. Like, hey, God, um, what can we do to have peace? What can we do to, to squash whatever beef that we have? Because I, I, I can't go against you. You're too great. You're too mighty. You're too awesome. And I acknowledge that. What are your terms for peace?
The idea of counting the costs is to weigh the expense and accept them because they're worthwhile rather than adding up the expenditure and walking away if it seems too high. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. If we go forward with Jesus Christ, then we would have followed him. If we turn back, we never knew him. Genuine faith endures to the end. Like the stony, thorny, thorny soil in the sower's tail, Jesus does not desire a relationship that is emotionally driven, shallow, self-seeking, or fleeting. He doesn't desire fans. In verse 33, it reads, In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. We have arrived at the final cost to follow Jesus and the cost uh, when it comes to the cost of possessions. To be a disciple of Christ, one must give up everything they own. We see the phrase, every one of you, meaning that it means every person that is here, each and every individual. The phrase renounce literally means to take leave of, to take leave of. So when I sign that contract and I am owned by the Navy, the Navy is telling me, you need to leave everything that you own. And I actually included my wallet and my driver's license because they took all that from me. That's in boot camp. So they, they take everything from you. The word all encompasses not just wealth, but material goods as well. Everything. We can't just think that we can slide by and be like, i just put a piece of gum in the back of my pocket. I'm good to go. No, Jesus ain't everything. If Jesus says, including the pack of gum that's in the back of your pocket, it needs to go. Church, remember the rich young ruler unwillingness to surrender his possessions and turn away from Christ, which we find in Luke chapter 18. He owned everything, what scripture tells us. And Jesus is sitting there saying, he's like, come and follow me. But he could not accept that cost. And what is the result of that cost? That he's eternally Lost. And the sad part is he, he can actually approach Jesus and how can I have eternal life? But he couldn't give up those possessions. Jesus requires that we renounce everything we have, our relationships, our desires, our lives, our possessions, everything. Only Christ will be able to hold us only Christ will be worthy of the utmost commitment. Our life in Christ is our death in discipleship. As disciples of Jesus, we give up everything in this world to live in the future kingdom. So let me ask you this, and I'm going to challenge you to think this way. You don't have to answer, but this is something now you must consider and to calculate. Am I willing to hate all other relationships to receive Jesus? Am I willing to die to my desires and plans to live by God's will? Am I willing to surrender all my possessions to receive God's kingdom? Don't be rash in your decision, but ponder it, calculate it, understand it. Everyone wanting to follow Jesus must understand that this is meant taking a total risk for counting the cost. What is that risk? Shame and loss. 
shame and loss. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. You know, I want to use this quote from uh, John MacArthur because he really, he really hits the point here. MacArthur says this, Jesus point, Jesus point, meaning to this verse 33, is that those who would be his disciples must recognize that they are stewards of everything, owners of nothing. Just think about that. Did I create my own eye? Ears? My own body? Did I create those things? No. I was born into this world naked. The, the knowledge, the intellect, and everything has been given by God. That he's, that he's given me means to be able to acquire wealth, to be able to uh, uh, provide for my family, to be able to have, to be sheltered from the elements from the outside. God is the one that gave me the wisdom. God is the one that grant me all the means that I have right now, the car that I have. It all belongs to God. It's all because of God. It's nothing of me because I own nothing. I'm a steward of it. Just as I'm a steward with, when it comes to my wife and my two children, I'm steward of many things, but an owner of nothing. The passage concludes with Jesus' comparison of believers with salt. In verses 34 and 35, it reads, Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it, make it, how will it be salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile, they throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Jesus said that salt is good. To highlight that, uh, I just want to highlight that salt back in, those, in the ancient world was, was very valuable then. It was very valuable. It was used for, for many things. It was used for healing and, and purifying. It was used for food, food preservation. Preservation, sorry. Uh, it was a, a food flavoring. It was an enhancer. So when we go to McDonald's, we like it with salt, right? Like, usually a lot of people like the McDonald's fries because it's like they, they salt it just right, right? But, <laughs> but, but that salt gives it that enhancement, right? It gives it that flavor. It, 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 it brings the, whatever that we're, we're about to consume uh, more delicious. Uh, I'm not sure if that's even a word, but anyways. Uh, <laughs> But it's great. It, that's what it does. But it's also used to help keep, uh, uh, keep people's bodies moist and in the most extreme uh, uh, conditions when it comes to heat. So it was used in many facets in, in, those, in the ancient times. Now, typically, salt doesn't lose its taste. Otherwise, its value as a, as a preservation agent, sorry, tongue-tied there, it would diminish, meaning it would have no value. So the point that Jesus is making here, he's like, look, if it loses its taste in this, if it doesn't have any flavor, if it can't, if, if it can't be used for anything like such as for the soil or even for the manure pile, because salt was also used to help keep weeds from growing back in those days when it came to the soil, but if it can't be used for that, Throw it out. People throw it out. This illustration shows that Jesus is looking for followers who will commit to following him for the rest of their lives, not just for a season. It's true that nobody ever stays devoted to the Lord perfectly. Sometimes Christians, we, we stumble, right? The demands of family, when it comes to selfishness, when it comes to the attraction for material possessions, um, even when it comes to doubts about Jesus Christ. 
when it comes to the salt is that we can't be lukewarm in our faith. There was a, a I'm trying to remember, um, when the Israelites would gather salts from, from the Dead Sea, and I think there was some type of component, I think gypsum or wherever the case may be, would taint the salt. And if the salt is, is tainted, it's, 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 no, it's, it's no use. When it comes to our life to Christ, are we salty or are we not? There's no in-between. Are you useful for the kingdom of God or are you not? You can't just hang out just because you like the message. It's not just about, I like, man, man, man I mean, Josh and the worship team, man, they rock and they do. Remember the large crowds that you have, onlookers. You have so many people from different areas, that, that including the disciples, that were, that were so fascinated about Jesus and they were so fascinated about the, the miracles that was taking place. And, and not just the miracles, but his, the way that he was teaching was such in a, a, a way that was full of authority. It was something that you had to sit down and you had to listen to. But the problem was is that you had this massive following, but no one wasn't really committed to really following Christ. They didn't want to, they, basically they wanted all the, the benefits, but didn't want to endure the hardships. And that's what it comes down to lukewarmness, is that we're sitting here at church, we, we, go, we go to church events, we want to be able to pray and hang out with people because it feels good to us. We like those things. But when it comes to the day when Jesus asks you to pay up, and all of a sudden you're like, no. Nah. I can't do that, Jesus. Look, at the end of the day, do we mess up? Yes, we do as believers. But I want to remind you something. Let me read you something in 1 Samuel 16, 7. This is what the Lord said to Samuel. He said, look, I do not look at his appearance or statue." Because I have rejected him. I mean, he's talking about Saul at this time. Humans do not, do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. It is about the heart. Are you committed in your heart to Jesus Christ? Because even when we, when we fail and when we mess up, when we go to 1 John chapter 1, verses 9, that he is so gracious enough that when we go to him and we go, Lord, I have failed in this area, whatever area that is, and, and I want to turn away from that, I want to truly repent of the sin, he's going to forgive us. He will forgive us. What great love of the Father that we have in Jesus Christ. All those things that even if we mess up, when you even look at Peter, when he messed up, he denied Jesus Christ three times and he was with Christ all those years. And he even said to Christ, he was like, I would, I would, I would, um, what he said, sorry. Well, <laughs> I'm all hyped up. So, <laughs> but, he, but he told Christ that, I think he said that he would die with them. I just don't want to mess up. But, but nonetheless, there was one point that, that Peter said to Jesus that he's so committed to him, even to death. And then all of a sudden, G, uh, Peter, later down the road, denies Christ. But Peter was no Judas. At least Peter went to Christ. Judas decided to think he can make amends by hanging himself. The heart is the heart. To finish this up, this is what I want to say. Are you a committed follower of Christ or are you just a fan? You see, a fan has a strong liking for enthusiasm for something or someone. They may enjoy the work, achievements, or performance, as I just mentioned, but their commitment level is very surface level, right? They're not fully committed. So the question is, to us believers, 
those who confess Christ. This is a challenge. Are we really fans? Or are we truly committed followers? To the non-believers who are here, it's, it's, laid out, it's laid out before you now. And hopefully you've taken the time to really ponder this, this decision that you're, that you're going to have to make. Because when it comes to your death, your decision is going to be made. And it won't be with Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus Christ, we must consider the cost and put him above all else. The cost of discipleship is self, relationships, possessions. Are you willing to give all that up for Christ? With that said, let's go to the Lord God in prayer. Lord, this 